Bibles to the third chapter of the book of Philippians. Extend a hearty welcome to everyone here this evening, our visitors certainly. Appreciate you choosing to worship with us this evening. Pray that uh, the time together will glorify the one who is worthy. Last night I driving on the, <clears throat> coming here to services, and he's going through Troy. I don't know about you, I like to read bumper stickers. You know, sometimes that's probably not too good a thing to do. Anyway. So I was reading this bumper sticker and it said, boldly going nowhere. And right next to it said Bernie. So obviously it was a political, I don't know exactly what it meant or how to tie it together. But it just struck me that the, the integrity of that statement, our world is boldly going nowhere, except to a Christless eternity. So I just invite you, my reading today uh, was Philippians 3, 
and I'm going to pick it up in the seventh verse, and I had that image in the back of my mind. Uh, in fact, it seems like in the world that we're living in today, if you don't boldly go along with whatever they are boldly doing, you're out of touch and you're unscientific and you don't have it together. But the Word of God says otherwise. I don't know what you expect to get out of revival meetings, but I have learned, I think, I guess I'm still learning too, but revival meetings frequently teach something out of God's word that I already know that I still need to know it. Does that make sense? It seems like I need that continual uh, reminder and infilling by the Spirit. And I'm always impressed at sometimes, Brother Jerry has a, pardon me for saying this, but he has a gift for making things simple. And I like that. And when it's in that format, when it's that simple, and it's the truth, and it's that powerful, then I retain it. And I think about it during the day, and I think about it in my bed at night. End up praying about things that maybe I wouldn't pray about if I hadn't been here. And so we, I have learned to really appreciate revival meetings for my own soul. And of course, we always pray that there is a blessing for many, many others. But let's see if there is a purpose in God's word for our lives and what the Apostle Paul had to say when he wrote to the church at Philippi. Philippians 3, 7, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Notice that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I had already attained either were already perfect, but I follow after if that I may apprehend that for which I also am apprehended. It's kind of interesting. Paul had been shipwrecked, he'd been put in prison, he'd been flogged, he'd been mocked. <laughs> and he said he still, in his faithfulness, still hadn't fully attained. I understand that, don't you? I think we're here tonight because we want to hear the truth. We want to hear it fresh. And the reason is because even though I believe, I want to believe more. There is a higher level of believing that we all desire. And I find it encouraging that a man like Paul, who has seen who had communed with him one-on-one -on -one in the Arabian desert. And yet he said, I don't have it all together. 
There's something comforting about that to me. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I guess we'll just stop reading there. Tonight, I, I hope that we're in a pressing mood. We're pressing for that mark that we want to grow in the Lord. We want to understand him more. We want to be made more like him. We want our lives to reflect the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and the saving power. And we are not boldly going nowhere. We're going somewhere. We're going into the presence of the Holy of Holies. We're in the presence of the Lord. The Holy Spirit has promised to be with us. And this is not just another night in a series of meetings. Every time we gather in his name, there is power there that we cannot fully comprehend. Lord, help us to understand that power. Help us to feel it. Whatever is said tonight, and I, I, I have no doubt at all it will glorify our Lord. Whatever is said tonight, I want it to have an impact, not just tonight when I sit here and say, oh, that, that's really a good thought. I want it to impact my life that I can grow. And I know you do too. And that's the reason we're here. Oh, let's see. Ryan, I think I'm going to call on you to pray. Um, probably some of you are aware that uh, Dallas Center has had quite an outbreak of COVID and they've called off their services uh, for our visitors. That's, it. that's one of our congregations in Iowa. And they've called off their services, and as of right now, they have 68 with COVID. So we need to pray for them. Any other prayer requests? Ryan, you want to lead us in prayer?
Well, for those of you who are visitors, our speaker is uh, Brother Jerry Priest and his wife Heidi. They're from Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. They have two daughters. A number of our young people are a youth gathering in Northern Ohio, one of our congregations tonight. But um, We have been graced with their son tonight. Aiden over here, this handsome young guy. I just wanted you to know who he was. So, Lord bless you. I'd like to also say good evening and welcome to God's house this evening. It's still water, Butch. Did he leave us now? He said he was going to put some Sprite or something in there, but he didn't. For a verse to springboard from, we're going to go to Psalms this evening. And I don't know, maybe, I don't know how to say it, I guess, but I, I hope this message is received as not a finger pointing. Because me and Heidi don't, uh, stand here and say that our children are perfect. Because tonight we're going to talk about training our children and we're going to talk about especially their conscience. So I just want to add just wanted to add that I guess opt out that you don't look at me and say he thinks he has it all together. I don't. But I just want to share with something that me and Heidi, um, when Sarah was wee little, we went to some classes on raising our children and we thought it was very important for raising our children. So it's something that's on my heart to share this evening. Psalms 119, I think we're gonna read verse 11. Verse 11, let's read it all together. Um, once all the pages stop turning. Heidi says, I changed the chapter. Psalms 119. Does everybody have Psalms 119? Verse 11. Very familiar verse. If you don't have it, I think, I'm pretty sure you can probably say it by heart. But let's read it together. Psalms 119.11. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. What's that mean for you this evening? What's the first thing that comes to mind when you read that verse? Phil said, I'm simple. It's simple. It's a simple question. Memorizing scripture. 
For what purpose, I'll ask? We might know the will of God. Tell me a little bit more. Cleansing power of the word. What did I say we were going to talk about this evening? Conscience. Conscience. See, we read this verse so many times and we read it and we say, well, I'm going to study, I'm going to learn God's word so that I don't sin. But do we back up and look into the center of this verse and say, I'm going to learn scripture so that my conscience pricks me, right? The Greek word that's translated conscience is sundasis, sunidasis. Most of the times that it's referred to is in the Old Testament. 19 times in Paul's writings. And the Hebrew word that is trans, translated to conscience is lab. And oftentimes that word in the Old Testament is heart. And according to my studies, it's someone said it's 860 times that it's referenced heart in the Bible. And it's translated from the word conscience. This Hebrew word lave is used in 1 Samuel. Do you remember when David was not king yet, and he was running from Saul, right? And he's running, running, running for his life. And he hides in a cave. And lo and behold, God brings Saul right to him, right? Remember that? Saul's taking a nap. I don't know why you take naps in the middle of the day, but Saul was taking a nap, right? And there's David, and he cuts off. And what's that verse say? said his heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. David's heart was troubled. His conscience was bothered. Another spot that we see about David and his heart being troubled is in 2 Samuel 24.10. God told David a specific thing not to do. What was it? Number the people. Did David listen? David decided to number the people. And we can go read it and realize that his heart or his conscience condemned him after he numbered the people. What about Job? Let's go to Job 27, verse 6. Job 27, verse 6 says, My righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. 
My heart shall not reproach me so long as I live. Remember, this is the same guy that, can we say, lost everything. Lost everything. And still refused to take it out on his heavenly father, right? Still refused to blame God. And he says, my heart. I'm going to hold fast. My righteousness I will hold fast. And my heart shall not condemn me. I think it's in 1 Kings. This is where David walked in the uprightness of his heart. The uprightness of his heart. See, if we translate that to conscience, it means a whole lot more to me. Because we don't think too much about heart, except for the heart that we each have that pumps our blood. But when you say you walk according to your upright conscience, it means a total different thing. And also, Paul lived before God in all good conscience. We could go to Acts 23 to read that, but we're not going to. So how does the human conscience work? Are we given a part of a conscience from birth? Let's go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we're going to read from verses 18 to 21. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, in all unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and run righteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifested in them, for God hath shewed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, but understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. If we go back up here to verse 19, it says, Because that which be made known of God is manifested in them, he shoot it unto them. So this evening we want to springboard off of that. You know, the, there's some things in a child or in us when we were little a part of our conscience that was instilled in us by God. Let's go to Romans chapter 2 and expand a little bit. Verses 14 to 15. It says, For when the Gentiles which have not the law 
do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which shew the work of the law written in their hearts. Hearts, translated to conscience. Which shew the work of the law written in their conscience, their conscience also being bearing witness, and their thoughts the mean while accusing or else excusing one another. See what I'm saying? We as Gentiles, small children when they're born, have in their conscience a small area that is given by God to help them with making decisions. And I was looking for a marker, but I don't see it up here, so that's okay. I'm just, I was just going to draw a circle. And if you would take a circle and draw a line through, so if you have a circle to hold, you draw a line about here. This bottom part is the only amount that God gives to us of our conscience. So we have this much that God gives us. So from here to the top of that circle, we're going to call tonight our moral conscience. So our primary conscience is the bottom, we'll say 20%, just to keep it simple. 20% of our, consci of our conscience is given to us as we read there in Romans chapter 2. It's a law that the Gentiles understood. They didn't know why they did what they did. But God told them. He put it in their conscience. And that's why they did what they did. Just for a little example, you know, sometimes we wonder if anyone in the world has that 20% sometimes, right? But if we would go back in Genesis chapter 4, what happened? There wasn't very many people on the earth at that time. There's these two boys that came and offered their sacrifices. One was accepted, one wasn't. What happened next? What's that? Jealousy. Jealousy makes you do what? And because of the jealousy, one brother did what to the other brother? And as that brother killed him, what happened to him? The brother that was still living. He was guilty. His conscience became seared. And he knew he had did something wrong. And Cain responds. Because God tells him he's going to wander the earth, right? And Cain responds, whoever finds me will kill me. Where'd that come from? How'd he know that? See what I'm saying? There's 20% 
of our conscience when we're little that we know X plus Y equals Z. It's the way it is. But God, or Jesus, when he was here on earth, he took it to the next level. If we go back to Exodus 20, verse 14, it says, You shall not commit adultery. It's that simple, right? None of us plan on doing that tomorrow, right? But Jesus, when he was here, in Matthew 5:28, took it to another level, and he said, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart, in his conscience. See, don't commit adultery, 20%. But then the moral end of that, the 80% added to that, Jesus says he reaches farther to us and says, even if you look, that's sin. So we don't, this evening, we're not going to look at the primary conscience anymore this evening. We want to look at the, the 80%. And as we raise our children, as you grandparents interact with your grandchildren, or maybe you have great-grandchildren, I can remember my grandma when I would spend time with her. She was always teaching me. I don't understand why. Now I know why. She had a desire on her heart to challenge my conscience, my moral conscience. The first thing that we want to look at in our moral conscience is establishing a moral warehouse. And then we'll look at the four activities of the conscience, the moral search mechanism, and some training. We're going to go back to Psalms 119, verse 11 first. And I don't profess to be an English teacher at all. But we have a sentence here and I can remember one of my English teachers teaching me some of this. And in a sentence, you have an action, you have an object, and maybe a place, and maybe a reason. And in Psalms 119, verse 11, it says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. What's the action? Hid. David hid something. What's the object? God's word. Was there a place for this object to be hid? In his heart or his conscience? And the reason. Or another way to say it is to maintain a right relationship with God, right? So when you're thinking about a moral warehouse or a conscience that we, have, we can affect 
80% of our children's conscience. Do you guys have big warehouses around here? I haven't seen too many. Or am I just not traveling the right road? Supposedly, there's going to be one built close to me that's going to house 100 acres. Do you have something like that? Do you have them around here? Okay. I've never been in one. But they say there's a spot to drive with a, like a forklift. And then you have all these shelves. And you can go down this aisle and come up that aisle and down that aisle. And there's just shelves upon shelves upon shelves. So thinking about our moral conscience and our warehouse, what are you or what is your child storing in that warehouse? Because you see, as you teach your child instruction, their conscience takes that and puts it in that warehouse. And it puts a little tag with it. So that when something comes up in life, you know, I'm just figuratively speaking, your conscience goes and looks through that warehouse. Let's search and see where this item is to help me to make this decision. I got ahead of myself actually maybe not yeah if I back up just a little bit you know when when we're talking about teaching our children what's uh, Deuteronomy 6 6 to 9 tell us we don't have to look it up what's it tell us about teaching our children. Precept upon precept. Precept upon precept. Line upon line. line, upon line. When? Noon, night, night, all day long. See, we have the opportunity as adults, not, you know, and sometimes we push it on parents for their own children, but I like to group it with all adults for each child. We have the opportunity to teach them principle upon principle. And these principles, they're taken to that warehouse. Each one that they learn, they're taking. And we as parents and, and Sunday school teachers and all of that have the opportunity to teach a child to control his behavior. To store that warehouse with all kinds of little issues that they can come back and find. So if we go back to Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2, verse 15, again, it says, which shew the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the mean. What's it say after that? 
while accusing or excusing. Where do they get that ability? Where's that come from? See, there's activities that go on in our conscience. And there's several things that we can put in our conscience. You know, there's positive things and there's negative things. As a child, Jerry soon learned that if he disobeyed dad, there was a spanking coming, right? Maybe a talking to, maybe an explaining, but ultimately, there was a spanking coming. The other activity of the conscience is to warn maybe before I did that. You know, you're going down the road and you go past the speed limit and it says 55. And you're going, you look down, oops, you're going 65. And what's your conscience tell you? Might be a policeman sitting around the next corner, right? Might be. We remember the guilt that came upon David when he disobeyed God, numbering the people. Why does his heart bother him? Because someone earlier on in life had put a principle in his warehouse that said you can't disobey God. And his heart, David's heart, his conscience, was coated with standards of right and wrong. That's the negative side of our conscience. The positive side of our conscience is that it prompts us and confirms. Our conscience can prompt us to do what is right. And then after we've done what is right, our conscience comes along and says, good job, that was right. And here's a scripture that goes along with it, and that's why you did what you did. Good job. See, that's the opposite of guilt. And I like to say when I feel that, you know, God has the ability to help us to go to that conscience and search that warehouse and apply guilt to our lives. But I think God also helps us when we've done something right and we go and search in that warehouse and we've done right and God says, good job, it's like a pat on the back, right? We've all been there. And God confirms that you did something that was right. So let's look a little bit at the moral search mechanism. After we've instilled all these principles upon principles in this warehouse, and our children come into a room, I'll just say it's a Bible study room, and the chairs are around in a circle, and Phil's late, 
I don't know why Phil's late, but he's late that night. And when Phil walks in the door, there's no more chairs. All the chairs are taken. For some reason, the person that set the chairs out didn't know Phil was coming. And Pierre's there. And Pierre sees the situation. He sees Phil walk into the room. And Pierre, his search mechanism in his warehouse goes back and forth through all them principles he has taught so far in his life. And he finds one. It's Leviticus 19.32. Anybody know what that says? You shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man. (laughs) See? Someone had taught Pierre to have respect for the gray-haired man. And he finds that in that warehouse, and it comes down to his mind, his conscience, and he says, now I have to do something. And Pierre gets up and says, here, Phil, you can have my seat. And he goes and gets another chair. But what happens in that same story will add a little twist. Phil's still late. Pierre's still sitting there. But no one had ever taught Pierre that verse. No one had ever taught Pierre to have respect for the elderly in that manner. And as Pierre sits there and Phil walks in and his search mechanism goes back and forth through his conscience and there's nothing tagged, Leviticus 19.32, respect the elderly. What happens? Nothing. See, Pierre, his conscience doesn't bother him. He's never been taught that. He's never been trained that. His conscience search mechanism would return empty-handed and he would just sit there. How can I say all of this? Let's go to Proverbs 23, verse 7. The first part of that verse says, For as he thinketh in his heart, in his conscience, for as he thinketh in his conscience, so is he. See what I'm saying? It's right there in scripture. Sorry, Pierre. It's okay. But you see how our life and what we teach our children is so important? That they can go, their conscience can go to that warehouse and it can find what maybe we taught them in Sunday school or someone else might have taught them. And it comes up and they can do what is right. The next part of training our children is positive and prohibitive training positive training I guess the way I see it is kind of negative and restrictive 
You know, for an illustration, we'll say, who do I want to pick on next? I don't know. I don't know any little girl's names. What's your daughter's name? Bexley. So Dan has Bexley, and he's walking through this garden out in the middle of Dayton. And Bexley sees a flower over there. Let's back up. Bexley was younger. She's older now. But she was wee little. And she's walking with Dan through this flower garden. And she goes over to pick a flower. What does Dan do? Dan probably says, no, Bexley, don't touch. Right? Don't touch that flower. But she's so young that that's all Bexley needs at that point in time. Because we've all been there and we've all seen it. We've seen parents argue with children that are this big, trying to instill in their minds what is right and wrong, and they can't comprehend it. They're too little. They're too young. So there's a point where no is just the correct answer. But let's say Bexley's now this tall. She's several years older. She might be, I don't know, I'll just guess five or six. And they're walking through the flower garden again. And she goes after the flower again. And Dan says, no, Bexley, don't do that. And here's the reason why. Number one, those flowers aren't ours. Number two, the people coming behind us want to enjoy the flowers too. Number three, if everybody picks a flower, how long will it be and there won't be any flowers? Right? And I'm not saying that's in all that could go on there, but you understand what I'm saying? There, there comes a time in our children's lives where no is good enough, and then as they, they grow older, we need to fill that warehouse. with all, God, all things in God's word. And as Bexley grows up and grows up, her conscience continues to develop and her understanding of family relationships deepens and her parents gradually shift from negative consequences and restrictive to proactive. And we teach our children, you know, as you're walking down the street and you see a piece of trash, what are you supposed to do? Just kick it under the bush over there? No. We as God's people should be better than that. We should train, we should do it first so that our children can see it. But secondly, we should train our children that we live in the United States and sometimes it's dirty and we pick things up, right? Because see, it doesn't matter if you're walking down in Dayton and there's trash on the floor or you're walking through your kitchen, right? If something got dropped, 
wouldn't you want your child to search that warehouse and realize, yeah, pick it up. And as Spexley gets older, her warehouse fills up with biblical virtues. And as we look at this and the warehouse is getting full and fuller and fuller, we think this is so constrictive, right? No, it's not. It's the opposite. It gives them so much freedom. Because throughout their whole life, when they can go find these things in that warehouse, they can do them and be a child of God and do what is right. And God can give them that little pat on the back. And in time, as Bexley gets older, she can say the, th the same thing that David said in Psalms 119. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. But there's a downside to some of this. And a caution that I throw up to us as adults. Why do you do what you do? Why? See, I don't know how your upbringing was. I know how mine was. But sometimes I only did what I did so that I wouldn't get spanked. I never got past the little area. I was never trained why. And when we bring this into our adult life, can I say that sometimes I just say I'm gonna do this or else I'm gonna get punished? That's not why we do things. That's not why. We do things because it's the right thing to do. Or I don't do something because it's the wrong thing to do. Not because I might get caught and I might get in trouble. Or if I don't do this, I'll get in trouble. That's not why we do things. Rather, the motivation to do right is not the love of virtue, but the fear of punishment when it's the wrong way, right? That's the, back, the wrong way. The right way is I want to do right because I love virtue. And I want to do what's right. So the positive side is when parents build into their child's conscience the reason why right is right. And the reason why wrong is wrong. And then our children develop a healthy conscience. 
But it doesn't stop there. See, as parents, we can develop and we can fill that warehouse and we can fill that warehouse and it's all good. And the flip side of that is, as parents, we can destroy a whole lot of that warehouse packing in there in an instant when we disobey what we taught them. The prohibitive conscience is not a guilty conscience. It's just an ongoing state of potential guilt. Do you live this way? Do you know somebody that lives this way? You know, this person hasn't done anything wrong. But they just live their life on the verge that if I do something wrong, what's next? I'm going to get in trouble. I'm always scared of doing something wrong. The overly sensitive fear of disappointing someone or being misunderstood or being rejected. Can I say this evening that this person practically dies a thousand deaths because he's so scared to do right? Because what if somebody says it's wrong? See what I'm saying? Scared to step out and do what God tells them to do. So how do we as parents make this happen in our children, this prohibitive behavior? Make them scared all the time. One way is parents manipulate the child by creating the fear of losing mom or dad's love. Have you ever done that to your child? If you do that, if you don't come here, Phil, I'm not going to love you. Have you ever been guilty of that? And little Phil comes up and, I'm sorry, Dad. I'm sorry. See, conditional love becomes the motivator for little Phil to obey. And that's not right. It's not right. Parents should always love their children regardless of what they do. The second way that we as parents can manipulate our children and make them this way is by making the child feel guilty. I don't know, you can put the example in there. You ever made your child feel guilty? Well, if you go do that, what's mom and dad gonna look like? Well, you really wanna go do it, but if you do that, What's somebody going to think of me? The next way that we create this in our children is we as parents fail to provide the moral reason for behavior. See, 
Remember the 20%, the 80%? The 80% is what we have the privilege of filling up with good things. And if we don't fill that up with good things, reasons why, then our children only have the 20%. And they go back to punishment. That's all they're scared of. Reproof. Rejection. And that's the only reason that they do right. That's not a good reason. So if you have a prohibitive conscience this evening, how do you how do you get out of that? Well, number one, it's the first, it's the same as sin. First, we have to acknowledge it. I have to acknowledge myself. Why do I do certain things? Am I scared of someone? Is that the only reason? And then you can start from there. You can see the sinful patterns. You can get a starting point of understanding of why you do that. And understand that you need to change that thought process. Knowing that we don't have to live in fear of potentially doing wrong. And knowing that we have the power of God within us, if we see that cycle in me, God can give us the strength to break that cycle and have people come into our lives, or maybe just by reading God's word once we're older, we can fill up our warehouse with principle upon principle of what's right in God's word. The second thing that I see to overcome the prohibitive conscience is we have to focus on the person of Jesus Christ. Do we understand, like the other night, I ask who, you, who we are, who we were meant to be, and how we can be that person. It's only through Christ. It's only through Christ. And the more you incorporate a right biblical perspective of yourself as a Christian and your destiny with Christ, the easier it will be to overcome wrong and fearful motivation of behavior. And I think as you try and try to overcome that, if you are in that state, it gives strength to you because you find that doing right is the right thing to do out of your love for your Heavenly Father. And we've all been there. We all realize that there is power 
there's power and confirmation in obedience. You know, oftentimes we find approval from man, right? We get approval from man. But how much better is it when we realize and receive and feel God's approval upon your life? If you find yourself in a prohibitive conscience that controls your behavior, I'd encourage you to take control now. Resolve not to automatically respond to situations you face day by day, but instead think first about the biblical principles. And if they're not in your warehouse, we all have these, right? And if we don't have them, I don't have my smartphone, but usually we have them and we got Bibles and you can look it right up. Ask God's word about a principle. You'll find it. See, I spend a little extra time on this prohibitive conscience because some of the most fearful people in the world are those that only do right things, but they don't know why they're right. And as a result, they tend to second guess every, get, every choice they make. Is this right? Should I do this? Is this right? Should I do this? If you wonder where to look in God's word for, I don't know, maybe a year, we at Chambersburg in the official body met for men's meeting. And every month we picked a topic. And every day we took a chapter of Proverbs and tried to attach verses to that topic. And it just blew me away. When we'd come back together after a month was up and all of us would sit around a table and we would talk about you name the subject. There is so much in Proverbs, in God's word, that talks about so many things we face. I think it's a good book to start to fill our warehouse with. A couple of them, I'll read them to you if you want to jot down the references. Some of these are not in King James. Proverbs 10, 12 said, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. See, we know that verse. But do we put it on the road when the rubber meets the road? Do we practice it? Is it in that warehouse when our search mechanism goes and look for it? Proverbs 15, 1, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. See? A gentle answer. How easy is it for you? 
Proverbs 20, 22 says, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will save you. That's not where I grew up. It's hard for a boy not to repay evil when you're a little boy and another boy wants to slug you. Right? It takes patience. It takes virtue. Proverbs 21, 23. He who guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from trouble. I think sometimes when we go to business meeting, we should put this verse on our foreheads so everybody can read it. Because sometimes our warehouse can't find that verse. I'm not attacking Cornerstone. I'm talking to my own business meetings. Proverbs 26, 4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. See, these verses are so familiar to us. But do they come to us? Are they findable in our warehouse when we need them? Proverbs 29, 11, A fool vents all of his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. Tonight in closing, what standards are you going to write on your children's heart around you? Maybe not your own. Maybe the ones that you have in Sunday school. What pillars will you put in their warehouse that they can go find later in life? Another question is, how are you going to write them into their life? See, I think as parents, we don't always look for the opportunities to train our children. Sometimes we're so busy and there are things that our children do and they come and ask us a question and we just say, no, we don't do that. I think we as parents and teachers of them, whether we're grandparents or great-grandparents, when our children come or other children come and ask a question, take time to teach them. Show them God's word so that they can understand that their 80% can be filled up. That's up to us to fill that up. A harder question is, do you adhere to and promote biblical values esteeming the preciousness of others? Do you? I can't answer that for you. I don't know if Paul Skiles has ever shown you one of his sermons that he preaches. He shows a picture of over in Africa, a little child starving to death with a buzzard sitting behind him. Did he show you guys that? Wow, that is so powerful. Because the next picture is a rich man. And see, as Christians, oftentimes, 
we see such different images there. Why? Do we esteem the preciousness of others to our children? Because see where the rubber meets the road is our children around us, their conscience, and what they do is a moral reflection of us. Have I taught them? Have we as a church taught them what's right and what's wrong? And do you, as Christ's follower, really have the love of Christ in your heart? Because if you do, all of this tonight comes pretty easy. You desire to teach those that are younger than you. You want to teach them. You want them to grow up and have their warehouse clear full so that they can search and find and be children that, that bring a good reflection to their parents in their church. What shall we sing? Dan, would you lead us in prayer?
Thank you, Brother Dan. Sorry I got a little long-winded this evening. Um, didn't realize it was getting that long, that late, but thank you for your attention. God bless you. Sleep